This episode is sponsored by Echo. Hear clearly, care confidently. Learn more at echohealth.com. That's E-K-O health.com. And use code JSP for $50 off any stethoscope. Just Some Podcast Media. The thoughts and opinions on Just Some Podcast are of the hosts and guests and do not represent the views of organizations that employ them or they volunteer for. They are also not responsible for spontaneous black holes or nuclear wars that may occur. You have been warned. Welcome, 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 everybody, to another fun-filled and exciting episode of Just Some Podcast. This is Tom. Hey, this is Ben. Tom, how are you, man? It's been a little while because, you know, we put out our bonus episode on April 1st of our We Continue to Monitor podcast on this channel. So it's been a little while since we've actually recorded. Yeah, it's been a hot minute. We've been busy around the office, so had plenty to do, but I'm glad to get in and we have got plenty to talk about. And I think it's a great topic tonight. Yeah, one of the things that we hear from our listeners is they want, you know, of course, the educational stuff. And you know, we try to have fun, have some fun episodes, but occasionally we try to throw an educational one in just to, you know, shock the system. Um, that's <laughs> yeah, get back gonna, to our roots. <laughs> yeah, so that's what we're going to do this time. The main topic we're going to be talking about tonight, obviously, as you've already read the show notes or the show title, is we're going back to basics and we're going to talk UTIs, which, I mean, in family practice is something that we frequently, frequently take care of. Also, for those that are listening that are not in healthcare, that is a urinary tract infection. And if you are a female listener and you're like, hey, why does this keep happening? Or how do I tell if I'm getting one? This is probably a great episode. If you're a male, you're going to probably learn a lot and about how it's probably not a UTI. So with that in mind, Ben, what are we going to talk about first? Well, Tom, before we get into everything else, man, I just want to know how are things going? How's the office? Just How's things in general, man? Just busy. It's hit that weird time of year where we've gotten past most of the upper respiratory stuff, but we haven't really started back into the swing of the next season coming up. Mostly the allergies I'm waiting to to start to see, but it's it's actually been fairly pleasant. We had a facility-wide maintenance issue, so we had to deal with some stuff at work. So we've been doing some housekeeping, but I think we're we're ready for the big push this summer coming up. So uh, how are things in your neck of the woods? Been busy. You know, here particularly, allergies are a very bad thing, as you well know, because you used to live here. And, you know, I've been getting high pollen alerts every day for about the last week and a half. So everybody's coming in clogged, congested, ears full, and just feeling cruddy from allergies. It's well known in my household that I ask Ben what is happening at his household. And I know roughly within 24 to 72 hours, that's what I will be getting. I have been fortunate. We have not had a ton of the high pollen alerts up here yet. But as I said, I know that season is coming up. So I've been telling all the patients, you know, that I run into, Hey, remember, take your flotinators or take your Claritin your Zizol, your whatever, because it is a coming. And I do want to plug our social media stuff real quick because, you know, I don't get to do that on our other show. Oh my gosh. And it's your favorite thing to do. 
I know. And I've, I've, it's been so long. I don't know if I remember how to do it. I bet you, if you dig deep and you try hard, Ben, you'll find it. Let me find my energy. Okay. You can find us, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube, all at Just Some Podcasts. Our website, www.justsomepodcast.com. Email jsp at justsomepodcast.com. Also, make sure if you're not following us on social media, you need to be because, you know, we got these new cartoon characters from Old Man Cy, Chris over there doing an amazing job. And because Tom had to shave for fit testing, we had to adjust his his, uh, cartoon profile a little bit. We gave him a little baby face. So if you're not on our social media, you should be. There's all kinds of hilarious stuff going on over there. And we like to engage with you over there as well. But Tom, other than that, what else could they do to help the show out? Well... If they're so inclined, they could go to our website. They can scroll down to just about the bottom before they do any sort of shopping on any sort of website. Because if they were going to, they would see an Amazon affiliate link. If they click on that first, then go to Amazon, then look at products and put them in their cart and purchase them. It helps out our show. You won't even know we were there. It doesn't cost you a thing. And we would really appreciate it. We do appreciate that kickback, definitely. Make sure you're also giving us ratings and reviews because, you know, that drives us further up the Apple podcast algorithm, make other people find us and, you know, tell your friends, tell your enemies, tell your frenemies, tell everybody about Just Some Podcast and we'll continue to monitor and Just Some Podcast media in general because Pollyanna does some amazing stuff over at The Buried Pleasures as well. Yeah, I listened to her latest show, Sex Not Porn. And it was a great episode. It was with a photographer. And if you want to hear some very interesting stories from a person who did not plan on being in that type of photo business, he's got some very good ones. But it is an adult-themed show, so keep that in mind if you're going to listen to it with anybody young, old, or weak-eared in the car. So just keep that in mind. It's our sex-positive podcast. I think it's the best. That's great. Yeah, sex-positive. Yeah, there you go. Well, Tom, I, I did, you know, normally, as our listeners well know, I don't tell you about our story that you may have missed, because I like to get your reaction live. However, in this case, I felt, you know, <laughs> this is not one we can just go cold barrel at Tom with. I mean, we we, we got to give him time to prepare and formulate thoughts, and so... <laughs> that's a that's a heck of a way of putting that yeah many years of experience between ben and tom has taught ben certain things should not be just handed to me apparently to talk about freely so yeah he warned me what we're so gonna as go. of the recording of this which this will be coming out <laughs> this weekend last friday a federal judge in texas in a federal district court banned the use and selling of Prestone, which is an abortion drug. Now, I say it's an abortion drug and that that's the main reason that it's used. However, it does have other uses. It can be used for miscarriages, which is a legitimate medical issue. And it can also be used for other things like cancer treatment, things of that nature. <clears throat> the Texas judge put out this ruling on Friday. A few hours later, a judge in Washington state tried to upend that ruling and, and issued another ruling, which means that it's probably all going to end up in the Supreme Court. However, the, the few interesting things that I want to talk about and then get Tom's thoughts on. First off, the AMA put out a statement Friday. And that's why I read a part of this. This is from uh, Dr. Jack Resnick, who is the president of the AMA. He said, today's court decision from a federal district court in Texas, staying longstanding approval of Mifestone flies in the face of science and evidence and threatens to upend access to safe and effective drug 
that has been used by millions of people for more than 20 years. The court's disregard for well-established scientific facts in favor of speculative allegations and ideologic assertions will cause harm to our patients and undermines the health of the nation. By rejecting medical facts, the court has intruded into the exam room and has intervened in decisions that belongs to patients and physicians. The court's rebuff of scientific facts also undermines informed decisions, erode trust in institutions, exacerbates social divides, places individuals and collective health at risk. Not only in banning this drug nationwide, the other aspect of what he banned involves the Comstock Act, which was a law from the 1870s saying that you couldn't mail things through the United States Postal Service that included things like contraception, abortion, porn. Basically anything bad. Yes. It, it was a morality clause, more or less. And so this, this original law was in the 1870s, has not really been used much since the 1930s, and it's kind of just been laying there. You know, we have a bunch of weird old laws on the books, just, in, you know, and like, you can't spit on the sidewalk on Tuesday in whatever town. So the use of this in that is obviously concerning in that it's a very archaic law, and he's using that as basis to put this out there. I'm somewhat active on TikTok. I do, you know, I one of the guys that I follow is a representative from North Carolina, and it is Jeff Jackson. His TikTok handle is Jeff Jackson NC. And he goes much more in depth into this from a legislative standpoint. The other part of it that's concerning in the end of his video that really struck me is if a federal judge can upend the FDA and take a drug with a 20-year safety history off the market with a signature, what would stop another judge from doing it to any other medication, whether that be Prozac? or ibuprofen, or any other multitude of medications that are out there, you're upending, I mean, you're going against everything that, the, the things that are put into place like the FDA and clinical studies and all this other stuff, and you're upending all of that to what end? And it's concerning. So first of all, the medication he banned for safety reasons has a better safety track record than Tylenol, which is also pointed out by the representative in the video. So whatever argument that they're going to try to make on behalf of safety of the product is worthless. This is a clear and present attack on medications that are being perceived to be used for abortions. That is the only goal for the for the attack on this medication. So why does that apply to you if you're happy about this? Because a judge who is supposed to be sitting there to decide legal matters has now decided that he's also a doctor and that he knows more about how to be a doctor than all the doctors who went to medical school, than all the doctors who did the research studies. And while I have a lot to say about what I don't like about the FDA, they are, in fact, the administration that we use in the United States to declare drugs safe. And they did. 20-some years ago. <laughs> yeah. So, again, it's not like the judge is having to make a decision on a legal precedent or on something to do with our interpretation of a law, which would, by definition, be his job. He in decided instead to say that 
20 years of safe use of this medication that the entire healthcare profession and everybody else associated with it know nothing. That's what he effectively did. So I don't care what he wrote and the rest of the opinion. It is worthless to me because that's what he said. That's what his decision did. It null and voided everything. So if you're not worried about it because you're happy about abortions being over, just remember if this goes through, something you want could be next. Like Ben said, what if birth control is next? I mean, that that harms a fetus, right? If it can't implant. What if, what if tobacco is next? Yeah. What if tobacco is next? What if alcohol is next? What if, what if they try prohibition? Remember? Oh, that can't happen? Really? Carrie Nation said that. And then she got prohibition passed in the United States. So for all those that are thinking this can't happen, we had to create an amendment to prohibit alcohol and then an entire another amendment to repeal it. And if you're thinking, well, geez, amendments just be being handed out a dime a dozen, there are still amendments that have not been ratified yet today. Like Equal Rights Act, by the way, you'd think that's, nope, that's not been amended to the United States Constitution. So don't think it can't happen. It's already happened once. And all the things we said couldn't happen are happening again. And this truly is not an abortion issue. You know, we don't get political on this show and we're not pro-life, pro-choice and anything along those lines. I don't care. It's the fact that a federal judge is taking it upon themselves to ignore science because that is his belief. His opinion is outweighing facts and it should not be that way. And, and I want to be clear is when I said my opening statement, that's why I said it is because it's widely believed that's why this judge was chosen. And that's why this line of legal questions or legal precedents are being set. Okay. So I don't care whether you are pro or against it. That's your opinion. You know, I have mine. Ben has his. I don't care. And I'm with Ben 100% on that. This is the United States of America where we used to believe in, you know, having your own right to a freedom of speech where clearly that's gone out the window nowadays. But the point of all this is, is what Ben is getting to at the bottom line, which is a person who is not a doctor is now making decisions that are directly affecting how doctors, nurse practitioners, physicians, assistants, nurses, everybody is going to start doing their job. And now people that aren't doctors are going to start having that power. And if we do not say something or put start enacting some legislation to stop this, it is going to get out of hand very quickly. And 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 like I said, Ben Ben pointed out some very easy things that I could easily make an argument right now that they should be outlawed, including alcohol, tobacco, um, a lot of medications we use, a lot of pain medications we use. Guess what? I hope you don't like any opiate-based medications because I could easily make an argument to have all of them outlawed today. Okay. So look at SSRIs in general. Yeah, SSRIs, SNRIs. Yeah. SSRIs have a black box warning from the FDA because they can increase the risk for suicidal ideation in teenage patients. There could be a judge somewhere who could say, based on that and that alone, the risk of using this medication for anybody is worse than the potential benefits outlawed. Correct. Oh, you know all those brand new weight loss drugs, GLPs? Well, they they might increase your chance at medullary thyroid cancer, and that's just not a risk we're willing to take. So no more Manjaro, no more Ozempic, no more Wagovi, no more any of them. 
So yeah, it, it might sound like we're being over the top, but really we're not. And if you think we're being over the top, then maybe you should re-examine, you know, your thoughts on this. But on that note, let's take a break here. Let Tom and his blood pressure get back down to normal, and then we'll jump into uh, UTIs. Tom, I know your students are still loving that echo cord digital stethoscope. Have you finally talked them into buying one yet? As a matter of fact, both of them are looking at those for graduation presents, I believe. That is awesome. And it's got the 40-time amplification. It's got the noise cancellation. It detects AFib, Bluetooth to your phone. I know we say this every week, but it truly is a game-changing piece of equipment that if you are a healthcare provider, you will use every single day. I would venture to bet that, and I do mean this, the very first time you use this stethoscope, you will instantly know that everything we've been saying is true. Like, it, it's that clear. It's not, you have to think about it, or maybe if you use it on these types of patients or in this setting, no. If you turn this thing on and you put it in your ears and you put your stethoscope on a patient, you're going to be able to tell the difference immediately. The first thing you're going to say is, wow. I ben didn't. and Tom are right. Yeah, I mean, just, <laughs> wow. So go check them out. It's echohealth.com, ekohealth.com. Use code JSP. gives you $50 off your order. Let's know that we sent you. So, Tom, we all know that taking medication, supplements, things like that, dosages matter. You know, if I told you you need to take 10 milligrams of Tylenol for your headache, it's probably not going to help. Well, you need to consider CBD being the same thing. If you use a low-dose CBD product, it may not feel much, and that may not necessarily be the CBD's fault. It may be the dosage. That's why CBD Stat only makes high-dose CBD products that actually work. And now their products are getting even stronger, Ben. I'm really happy to announce, and I've got to try some of their new products, and they are launching a new extra-strength dosage of their highly popular topical products in the 7,500 milligram range. And I can tell you, Ben, I've already used all these products, and I was already blown away with how well they worked before, but now they seem to work even faster and for even longer. Yeah, and this is basically going to maintain CBD stats. Status is the most powerful CBD product market on the line. They're still THC free. So they're going to have the 2,500, the 5,000, and the 7,500 milligram products now. And on top of these new higher strength products, Ben, they're also dropping all the prices across the board to not only make them more effective, but more affordable. And of course, you know, they love their healthcare workers and first responders. So if you're a healthcare worker or a first responder, you go to cbdstat.care slash healthcare. You fill that form out. They're going to give you that permanent 40% discount. But Tom, they know that not all our listeners are in healthcare and they want to help them out too. So if they go to cbdstat.care, they put everything in their cart, including that 7,500 milligram topical. Tom, what code can they use? Well, if they get that 7,500 milligram topical calming cream and the muscle roll-on, I suggest both of those highly. If you just put in the code JSP20, that's JSP20 all together, you'll get 20% off your purchase. Absolutely. Go check them out at cbdstat.care. All right, Tom. Back to basics. UTIs, urinary tract infections. So... Yes. You either love them or you hate them, I feel like. That's it. And it, it truly is, other than respiratory infections, it's probably the second most common complaint that I think we see in, in primary care. 
In the acute sense, yes. You know, especially in the beginning when I didn't have a larger patient panel and I got the, oh, they can't get into their normal guy, you know, in the office. Can you see him today? UTIs all day. <laughs> URI, UTI, ear pain, sore throat is just, wow. You can you can literally just throw a rock on a schedule and probably hit a UTI. But that being said, there's a lot of reasons for people to have pain with urination. It's not always urinary tract infections. So there's a lot of education that goes out to the patients when they come in with these symptoms. That is very, very true. Well, Tom, let's just jump into what a UTI basically is. You know, there's a couple of different pathways or, or things that we see that we kind of classify under UTIs. You, know, you have your you know, cystitis which is basically the infection of the bladder, the, the lower lower urinary tract. And then you have pyelonephritis, which is infection of the kidney or the upper urinary tract. Right, Tom? Correct. So one of the main things that we see as far as the difference between cystitis in the bladder and pyelonephritis is a lack of symptoms like fever, systemic illness signs like chills, rigors, fatigue, malaise, that flank pain, and, you know, the CVA angle tenderness. So, you know, like particularly for me, whenever I see a patient who's like, hey, I think I got a UTI, one of my first questions is, are you having any, any flank pain or you, you know, any pain in the kidneys at all? Correct. That's a big one, especially with nurse practitioner students. I try and make sure during their exam, if they are complaining of anything in the abdomen, you know, have you considered or did you do a CVA tenderness test? So cystitis among females is extremely common. It's mainly because, and we learn this in nursing school, and, and so I'm sure this is kind of review for some people, but again, it's back to basics, and so we want to make sure we hit on stuff. You know, the shorter distance from the anus to the urethra likely explains why females are at a higher risk for UTIs. Among otherwise healthy females, other risk factors that you may see, you know, recent sexual intercourse, use of condoms, spermicides, uh, or, you know, history of UTIs can sometimes be kind of that flag of maybe this is a UTI. One of the first things I also try and make sure I talk to patients about is how long have symptoms been going on? Because if somebody comes in, they said, Hey, I've been having, you know, pain with urination or, you know, some irritation and I go, okay, how long has this been going on? And they're like six years. No, this is not a UTI. I, I, I don't know exactly what we're going to dive into at that point, but I can tell you what I know it's not. It's not a urinary tract infection. So I know that seems like a really obvious question, but that's another thing people don't consider. I do, especially for women, if they are coming in and they're saying, hey, I know the symptoms just started this morning or last night, but I've had you know several UTIs over the past year or two. This is how it goes in. I do take that into account. Okay. Now, that's not to say I don't rule out for men, but men get kind of a different treatment for UTIs, and we're going to talk about that more towards the end of the episode. So just be aware, we're not dismissing you guys out there that are like, hey, but it hurt one time when I peed. We'll get to that, but it wasn't a UTI, or it's not likely to be a UTI. And Tom, as I'm sure you know, what is the most frequent microbial that causes urinary tract infections? I believe that's E. coli. That would be E. coli, you're right. Any of the estimations are anywhere from about 75 to 95% of cases. Some of the other ones that you may see is like Bella pneumonia or even see, I've seen staph and seen some other things. Beyond that, you start getting into more complicated cystitis um, or complicated you know, bladder infections. Patients who have like indwelling catheters long term, they may be colonized. We're not going to go into all that tonight. 
But I mean, just know that, you know, if you have other risk factors like they're self-cathing for whatever reason, or they have a long-term indwelling catheter, or they have other urinary obstruction or problems, you're more likely going to look at a much more complicated disease process. Not only that, that is really something that you are probably going to be involved with a specialist and you're probably going to want to call their office about care or uptake on that point if you have a permanent indwelling, you know, Foley catheter or something like that. That's not to say your family practice or primary care provider can't do it. It's just honestly, I would tell you in my experience, if you're at that level of care, you're usually already at a specialist. So I would just say that's where you would want to talk to. I, I don't disagree. I mean, and I think once you get the specialist involved, sometimes it may even just be that consultation of, hey, you know, Joe's got another UTI. I've even, I've even had urology call me and say, hey, you know, we're not going to treat this one because I suspect, you know, they're colonized with this one. If you see another bacteria pop up on, U- on a UA, then maybe we need to treat that one. But this one, we're just going to, you know, not address it. But again, different rules. So let's just say that's a whole subspecialty category, self-cathing or indwelling catheters or in hospital. Again, those are com- very different situations. And shout out to our urology NPs like Hillary. Hey, what's up? Right. Yeah. C-U-N-P's. <laughs> so. Well, Tom, so we kind of go over to the backstory and stuff. So if you have someone coming into your office, a female, what are some of the signs and symptoms that you may be seeing or make you suspicious of a UTI? So obviously, number one, pain with urination, lower abdominal pain, and with women, well, I shouldn't say with women, but it tends to be nausea. I, I get a lot of lower back pain as well. So I'd say lower abdominal, lower back pain, nausea, and pain with urination tend to be the most common. Yeah. The other one I see added into that is like the urgency, like, oh my God, I feel like I got to go and I can't go much or tons of frequency as well. Yeah. I didn't think about that, but you're correct. Increased frequency is one of the, the big symptoms. But again, I, I also have a lot of people that we have other issues to deal with outside of this that we're going to cover and what may be causing their problem. And so sometimes frequency or I don't feel like I, you know, completed my urination. I don't, I didn't think about it for UTI because I consider it for all so many things. So that's my problem. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I think it's in the totality of it. I mean, if, if they just come in with, hey, I have urgency. Okay. Well, that may be something else or I have frequency, you know, it could be diabetes, you know, polyuria. But in the totality of things, okay, hey, you know what? It's burning. I'm seeing blood in my urine or whatever. You know, that along with frequency is kind of where, yeah, it, it, in and of itself is not a symptom, but in the totality of it. But honestly, one of the things that make UTIs very easy in my office is we have the ability to run a dip right then and there in the office. So yes. once somebody comes in with any of these symptoms, honestly, most of our our staff automatically, they've already got a urine. And the specimen has already been run before I have even got to the room. So shout out to all the people that make our jobs possible. Thank you. Now, the only downside to, you know, and this is for student practitioners or, you know, brand new nurse practitioners or, or PAs. If your patient is taken peridium, <laughs> your dip is going to be useless because... And this is a little, you know, one of those little nuggets of information that you need to keep in the back of your head. Peridium, as most people know, changes your pee like Kool-Aid orange. Well, the dipstick works by detecting color change 
on on the different things on the on the dip. Orange is going to skew most everything very oddly. So yeah, and I always tell patients if I'm getting if I'm prescribing protein, if they're taking azo over the counter, just a heads up because I don't want the phone call the next day going, "What did you give me?" Because like I got up in the middle of the night to pee and like it's neon. Yeah, and like neon orange. Like that. That's a normal side effect of the medication. Yeah, I do warn everybody because actually it says that on the medication somewhere it says will stain clothing. So <laughs> I do try and warn people is like, hey, if you have never taken this, when you urinate, it is going to be highlighter orange. You should be aware of that. So that is a big education point to all your patients when you start them on this. But I think everyone goes, well, they have a UTI. We'll just automatically give them pyridium. No. No, you should actually talk to your patient because, like I said, you know, sometimes pain is the most common, but it's not always the only. Sometimes it's nausea. Sometimes it's lower abdominal pain. Sometimes it's lower back pain. I've, you know, heard a bunch of weird stuff. Honestly, if it's an elderly female or male, altered mental status, you might need to be like, you know, they might not be complaining of any pain. You might still need to get a urine. So there's a lots of reasons we get the urine. So you do catch it without it. So don't think just because it's a UTI, you have to give something for pain. That may not be the most pressing symptom. So I want to do two things. I want to ask you, okay, so Tom, when you look at that dipstick, what are you looking for? And then I want to go back to the ultra mental status in just a moment. So the very first two things I look at are nitrates and lukes. Absolutely. So I was like, I mean, I look at everything else after, but those are always at the two bottom of my, the little receipt paper I get from the machine. So I just look bang right at the bottom and go to the, those two. I am also pretty aggressive for treatment of UTIs. So even because, oh boy, there, there have been a few studies out that are like, Hey, we're under treating people just because they don't have every symptom or everything, you know, Later cultures will show that bacteria was growing, but there was enough present for the dip, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I will say that while those are the two most prominent things, and I am definitely looking for them, I will not rule out treating somebody if they're not present. Like I will still consider it, but I want to hear the whole story. And that actually goes in line with one of the things that Up to Date says. That's one of the sources that I've used with multi other ones. One of their quotes here says, you know, however, results of the dipstick test provide little useful information when the clinical history is strongly suggestive of UTI, since even negative results for both tests do not reliably rule out infection in such cases. So you're absolutely right. I mean, sometimes you have to treat the patient, not the not the test. But yeah, I look for the lukes, which is, of course, white blood cells in the urine showing signs of infection, the nitrites, which is a byproduct of the bacteria. And of course, I look for like blood to see, you know, if it's with hematuria or not. Now, to circle back around to the ultra mental status, I'm glad you brought that up. And I wanted to bring that up under clinical, like, you know, signs and symptoms and stuff. But in my research, it's different than what I've always been taught. And so I was kind of taken back uh, by that a little bit. So I am, you know, rural Kansas, as everybody well knows. And one of the rural docs that I used to work with, one of his famous quotes was, if an old lady is crazy, check her pee. Meaning, you know, there's By the like, way, not a quote from just some podcast. <laughs> yeah, don't that, not me. But it was basically, you know, if you have a mental status change, an acute change in mental status, confusion, things of that nature, particularly in the elderly female population, one of the first things that you should do is check their urine for a UTI because they may not have the pain. They may not notice the frequency and the urgency because they may be incontinent. And so they may not have some of those other symptoms. 
but it does seem to happen more frequently that they have mental status change. Again, from up to date, there was one cohort study of nursing home residents among clinical features that prompted evaluation for UTI, which included, you know, change in gait or falls, functional status, only acute dysuria, change in the character of urine, and change in mental status were associated with presence of both pyuria and bacteria. Other studies have, that controlled for comorbidities have found no association between bacteria and, and nursing home patients and nonspecific mental status changes, such as increased restlessness, confusion, and aggression. Among those with bacteria, there also appears to be no association between these nonspecific mental status changes and urinary markers of inflammation. Again, it sounds like it's a very small study, but it is included on up to date. Um, but to me, and it, I, at this point that I know it's very anecdotal for me because it's only dealing with my practice. I've seen it so frequently, though, that you see this acute change and that's, you know, the, a common occurrence is they have a UTI. So we were wrapped up about ultramental status. And I said, so, you know, based on a couple of studies, that's not the case. And so at this point, it's anecdotal in my own practice. But that to me is just so strange because I've seen it so many times where you have an elderly female come in with confusion and it is a UTI. Now, that's not to say that that's always the case. I mean, how they could be having a stroke or a multitude of other things. but. I, it is a common occurrence, I think, more in elderly populations, although apparently some of the studies don't back that up. Well, like you said, it's widely known, I believe, in just about any hospital in the United States. If you have an elderly person, especially a female, and they suddenly are acting very strange, you're getting a urine sample. I mean, it's it's up there with they're saying chest pain or shortness of breath, getting an EKG. I mean, it's just it's a standard thing to do, and I'm glad. glad. Yeah. yeah, and I'm glad. Now, as been pointed out, we're we also don't get lax and start saying, well, clearly it's a UTI, so I don't need to worry about the fact that half of her face is drooping. Like, no, we we still do our full workup, but when it walks like a duck and it quacks like a duck, we usually try and make sure it's a duck before we go forward. So when something is that common, and I would tell you, again, ask any nurse or nurse practitioner in America, they'll probably tell you UTI is one of the first things we're going to look for. Well, Tom, so I know we talked a little bit pre-show, and I do this not according to standards, and you do, and so I want you to talk more about it. Obtaining cultures... Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I did mine accidentally correctly. So let's let's make sure we're clear about that. No, I, I just never saw a need. If it's a basic cystitis, you know, lack of signs of pyelonephritis or concern of worsening infection, either an otherwise relatively healthy, you know, adult, no, I just treat them antibiotic and send them out of the way. No culture. And that is what studies show you should do. I have not. I usually do pull a culture. But now, you know, because of this show and because, you know, the research that we're doing to put out up-to-date evidence-based information, I will change the way that I practice. But studies show that because the causative organism is so frequently predictable, being mostly E. coli, in acute simple cystitis, routine cultures for such infections are often not necessary for management decisions. So... Tom was right on inadvertently, I guess. Yeah, I won't let it go to my head, Ben. <laughs> now, that's for simple, you know, bladder infections. If you have concerns for complications, those other comorbidities, things of that nature, you're never going to hurt to get a culture, I don't think, just to ensure that you're not seeing 
or if you're in an area where there's a lot of antibiotic resistance, I think it would be another area. To get. If there's any doubt, send it out. Just get the culture, be on the safe side. And and honestly, that's the that's the philosophy I go by is if I am not sure, you're getting a culture. That's how it goes. So, Tom, before we jump into management, any uh, anything else we need to add? I mean, we've covered, you know, etiology, terms, signs and symptoms. Yeah, let, let me let – because I talked about the CVA tenderness. Let me, let me talk about one more thing with CVA tenderness, the exam itself. So this is a podcast. Some of you are in healthcare, so I'm not going to try and explain everything about this. But for those of you that practice or are a student or – Somehow are involved with healthcare, you're just wondering when you have your hand on your patient and you give them the, the percussion, the thud to create that percussion on your patient. If you barely touch them, there is not going to be any pain in your patient or reported CVA tenderness because you did not accurately or sufficiently percuss your patient to elicit CPA tenderness. Okay. So do not fool yourself into thinking grandma's only got a simple cystitis because she reported no, you know, back pain, side pain, or CVA tenderness on exam. When really, if you had gave them an, a good, healthy, you know, thud, they would have said, ow, and you would have known this is a pyelonephritis and told them. And then on top of it said, oh, if it gets much worse anytime soon, you need to go straight to an ER. You can prevent a lot of problems for your patients. So that is also from experience. If you are doing the exam, you're not wanting to hurt your patient. I'm not saying knock grandma out, but I'm also saying you need to be able to make sure that you're doing the exam correctly. So just throwing that out there. I assessed her CVA with a percussion. And at that point, the patient flew from the chair. Yeah. yeah. Landing it, in the floor, breaking her hip. I wait to see. So I did, I did CVA turnus with a reflex mallet. No, don't do that either. <laughs> Just saying. I've had many a page or many a student be like, well, they didn't have CBA tenderness. And then I did. I was like, yeah, they did. <laughs> Show me how you did CBA tenderness. And then it's like, I'm like, no, no, you got to get in there. So, well, Tom, we covered everything about UTIs except how to get rid of the damn things. So, well, that seems key. I mean, it does. If if you want your patients to continue to come back, where it not turn into a pyelonephritis, or you know they get urosepsis and end up in the in the hospital for several days on IV infusions, you that sounds bad. Treat it. it does sound bad. So, Tom, what do you use, man? My go to is Macrobid. It's it's considered first line across the board. Like everybody, you know, says you know, even if you don't like it, and I do know practitioners that you know they don't use that first line, they understand it's a great useful tool. So that's, you know, widely accepted. Also, it works really well against E. coli, the most common cause, E. coli. So for me, it's a no-brainer. It plays really well with a lot of other medications. You know, it's it's safe pretty well. So, I mean, there's always risks with everything, and I go over those with my patients. But, you know, Macrobid's my, my go-to. And that's usually mine, too. Typically, dosing is 100 milligrams orally, BID for five days. Um, the other one that is considered to be first line that I have used some, although you see more allergy to it, so it's hard, but a little bit harder to use is Bactrim. Bactrim DS, and it is once a day, twice daily for three days. Correct. Also, if you are using the correct dosaging guidelines, 
be prepared for your patient to fight with you. So apparently everybody knows more about medicine than us nowadays. And more than once I have had a patient say, well, I only take Bactrim because that's what I take for all my other ones and it worked. And I'm like, you know what? It's still safe in first line. So of course I'll give him Bactrim. But then when they get to the pharmacy and it's only for three days, but there are other doctors always give it to them for a week. And that's how they've taken it every time before. So that's what they want now. And you say, no, you're going to have an argument. So just be prepared and know what you're talking about because they're going to ask questions. Just to complicate things a little bit further, just in, you know, in case they, they have an, an allergy to the macrobid in the bacteria, and then you move on to your beta-lactam agents. So like your augmentins, septonir, lexin could even be used. You see cephalexins for my patients that come for follow-up from an ER. Cephalexin is used frequently. And I use it more for kids. I mean, no, we're not really covering kids in this episode, but I do use it just because it's easier to dose because it's liquid forms. Yeah, I like Augmentin or Cephalexin for uh, pediatric patients. And yeah, it, it's it's never something you want to use, but that and that's a whole nother, I guess, show someday, perhaps a pediatric UTI. But And then, of course, if you want to pull out the big guns and the, well, the allergies. Cipro. Yeah, I pro for yeah, any for quinolone for a UTI just seems ridiculous to me. Let's clarify that as in a simple, uncomplicated UTI. Yeah, and, and the only reason I say that is again bad experiences of somebody saying, Well, one time I got Cipro and that worked, so that's all I want. I'm like, no. <laughs> and you know, fight ensues. Now again, as Ben said, there is appropriate times and means and measures for us to use Cipro. And I have no problem with all that. I'm just saying that is not something I would want, you know, someone to use as first-line treatment for a UTI unless there's a specific cause. But I think sometimes quinolones are just so easy to use because they kill everything. So people are just like, oh, I'll just give a Cipro because I can. And I'm like, please don't. Please stop doing that. So especially yeah, when you're elderly mean, patients, please stop so giving all of them. you bazooka to a knife fight. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, yeah, it's going to kill them. Or, it's, yeah, it's going to kill the, the the bacteria. But, boy, you're going to cause some damage. So please stop doing that. And, of course, that. with any antibiotic usage, you know, of course, antibiotic stewardship, make sure you're using it appropriately, dosing it appropriately. And then, of course, you have to be cautious and mindful for things like C. diff to occur. So make sure you're monitoring your patients for that, or at least, you know, informing them that that's a potential possibility, or if they call you in a couple of days and go, you know, that they're having this massive foul-smelling diarrhea that, you know, maybe you need to be considerate of that. I do frequently talk to my patients, especially elderly, but all patients about probiotic use at some point, not for every patient, for every, but I'm just saying, especially someone that, you know, like if it's a UTI, we've already treated one or two this year, you know, hey, maybe you need to be on a probiotic or are you eating yogurt? Like what what types of things are you doing to protect your gut health? So that is something if you have a question to bring with your provider or if you are the provider, maybe keep something like that in your head. So if your patient asks some questions about it, you have an answer. And as we're wrapping up, Tom, let's jump into mails real quick. I know you want to hit on that. I'm a little different as far as some of the approach. Symptoms may be the same. You know, you may still see the dysuria, the urinary frequency, urgency, things of that nature. Of course, you're still going to want to dip the urine for to look for leukocytes, nitrites, blood, things of that nature. 
However, the recommendation for males is to get the culture to confirm the diagnosis of a UTI in males. And Tom, why would that be? Well, because it's not likely to be a UTI. So facts are, if you're a guy, it is not probably UTI. All right. That's just how it is. What are some of the differential things we would be considering in a... Well, yeah, I'm going to get to that. I'm just saying I, I have a lot of guys all the time. They're like, well, it hurts my PI, my girlfriend said of a UTI. I'm like, no, you don't. <laughs> That's the first thing. Now, I do get a urine sample. The, the number one thing that tends to be, at least I have noticed in my practice with my males, is dehydration. They're not drinking enough water, especially in the summertime is when it's really bad and the fall. But by and large... They're just, you know, they're drinking 12 Mountain Dews a day, but they don't drink any water. It started to get a little irritation when they peed and it was dark urine and they looked it up on Google and that said they had bladder cancer. So they came right in and I'm like, no, you don't have bladder cancer or UTI. You have some mild dehydration because your specific gravity is through the roof. You need to drink some more water. Now, having said that, the dark color germ is one of the things, especially in men, you need to be keying on is if it's dark. You need to be, you know, seeing what's going on there. Also, you need to be looking, is there blood in their urine and are they reporting pain? Okay. Now, painful hematuria in a male, I'm still going to be real suspicious, but I want to know some more of what's going on. But I'll tell you right now, you hear the words painless hematuria in a male, that is a flag that always goes to urology. I don't care what's going on. Urology can call you and tell you you're dumb, but you get painless hematuria in a man, that dude is going to a urologist as fast as I can push him out the door. Absolutely, because if you're painless hematuria, you're looking at more often than not a cancer in the bladder, a mass in the bladder that is bleeding, but it's not causing any pain. And so painless hematuria, that is an absolute red flag. The other thing that we may see in males that may not be a UTI, the prostatitis can cause similar symptoms as far as like dysuria, frequency, things of that nature. There's also frequently nausea and extreme pain with prostatitis. So that's also something to be aware of if they're saying I'm having all the stuff. Oh, and, and the pain may be intermittent, by the way, let's, I've, I've heard patients that have been diagnosed prostatitis and said, no, it didn't hurt the whole time. Some said they could barely move. Some said I'd be just sitting there and all of a sudden it hurt for a little while and go away. So, but pain is associated with it. And I've seen that more in like truck drivers. Yeah, um, frequently they're sitting still for long periods of time. Yeah. And the vibration of, yeah. And then, of course, Tom, so not being around the bush any longer, what's the other main thing that could potentially cause urinary type symptoms in a man? Ben, that would be the old STD or STI or the clap or the VD or whatever else you want to call it. Say it ain't so, but yes, it is. Especially if you are a younger guy. And we talked about all that Mountain Dew and you're not drinking enough water and you're like, oh, that's what it is. So you drink some more water. But guess what? It still burns when you pee. It's time to go see a health official. You need to get tested for gonorrhea and chlamydia. Well, you need to get tested for a lot of stuff, but gonorrhea and chlamydia need to be on that list. They're, they are the most common, yes. You know, you may see some penile discharge. You may not. You know, you see men that are sometimes asymptomatic and have no symptoms. But if they are a sexually active male presenting with urinary symptoms, STIs definitely needs to be on your list of potential differential diagnosis. Yeah. And I got to be real honest, especially if it's a younger male, I would definitely say there's a, 
if you said, Tom, do you think it's a UTI or STD? STD. <laughs> like, just there you go. Like, and again, that's not, that's not a judgment of the person that's basing this off statistics, which is, it is not likely that he has a UTI. It is very likely based on those symptoms, he has an STD. So that's not a judgment call that I don't care how he got them, who gave them to him. Well, I care about that as in they need treated now too, but I, I don't mean them as a person. I just mean they need to know this information and we as a society, if we don't address it like that, it's going to continue to be the problem that it is. So we got to stop acting like it's not a, it's not a big deal. We're adults. He had sex. He got an STD. We got to treat it. End of story. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, like we talked about with females, you know, the close proximity between the urethra and uh, the rectum, of course, with males, you don't have that short of a pathway between the two, and that's why, of course, the likelihood of it being UTI is lower than it being an STI. So, wrapping up our Back to Basics episode, I hope you find it enjoyable and you got some clinical pearls out of it. If you're a student, hope you were diligently taking notes or, or at least just listening to it and filing that away for when you do clinicals. So, Tom, anything you want to add as we're wrapping the show up, man? No, just make sure you treat your patient. And if you think that that patient is sick and needs treated for a UTI, regardless of what that slip of paper says, treat him for a UTI. Pretty simple, but, you know, just sometimes, like like we said earlier, you know, treat the patient, not the, not the lab results. But, of course, then you balance that with antibody stewardship and making sure that we're, you know, not, you know, don't just get macrobid to every single person that walks in the door. Yeah. Either. Yeah. So. Yeah. Don't do that either. That's also bad. Because then, you know, what's going to happen is we're going to, in 20 years, we're going to build a superbug of E. coli that is resistant to macrobid. And we're really going to have a problem. Yeah. Yeah. So, anyway, on that note, tune in next time and, uh, you know, wash your hands, take care of yourself and each other. Hey, everybody, stay safe out there. Swearing just to pass the time. Lately, I see why. I am alone I caught some road bridge And I thought of you And all the many times You say I should have known Talk across all